0: That worked out to be a 45-minute meditation, which I'm very happy about. You know, often when I teach here, uh, when I teach retreats here, and people are moving in the first evening, I say to them, you know, in the course of this week, we'll give you a lot of instructions about do this, do that, bring your attention here, put your attention there, be with your breath, be with this, be with that. Those are all very helpful things to say, so it'd be good if you did them, but if you just came here for uh, these three days or these five days or seven days or 30 days or 60 days or however long you're going to stay here, but if you just came and stayed here and just got up when the bell rang and sat and walked and sat and walked and took your meals and and showered and ate your meals and slept at night and just stayed here for any amount of time, wisdom would arise. Really, it would. That the things that we suggest in your attention here, there, there, here, they're actually very good suggestions. But what's happening is that the mind is relaxing. When the mind is relaxed, it looks out and it sees what it sees and it gets it. I love the fact that um, in in the chronicles of the Buddha's life after his own enlightenment experience where he felt now he understood really why it is that human beings suffer he really didn't teach meditation very much he went from place to place and told stories to people he told parables great crowds of people came to hear him and he told different stories that that were metaphors or parables in the, in the style of Jesus, he told stories, and people got it. I love that those uh, the particular uh, uh, recounts of uh, accounts of um, it might say, it start they start out by saying, "Thus I have heard." and then they tell the, the Buddha went here and there and there and there. And then it ends by saying, and as he finished speaking, behind the eyes of so and so many people, thousands of people, arose the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. I love that. They just listened. He said, listen, more or less. He didn't say like this, listen. But more or less, what he said is, things happen... The mind can get stuck with them and fight with them. But if you fight with what you can't change, all you have is tension. As a matter of fact, if you fight at all, all you have is a mind that's clenched up with fighting. And the way to meet life is as a friend, like the way we meet friends. The way to meet yourself is as a friend. And so and so many people, when they heard that, they got it and their minds through not clinging were liberated from taints means in their minds after that greed, hatred and delusion which is another word for confusion did not arise again I I, I take so much courage from that even that it hasn't happened to me that I just heard somebody say that and they never rose again those taints they still rise plenty in me I told you already today a few stories within the last week (laughs) They arise a little bit, sometimes a lot. But I have a lot of confidence in the fact that they rise less, they stay less long, and that for some people it's a gradual awakening. That's that's enough for me. How was your sit and your walk? What did you discover? What happened for you? This is what we might call a group interview. It's a big group, but people will speak up and it'll be valuable for other people. What would you like to say? What did you notice? Yeah.
1: I noticed that I could be aware of what was going on inside of my mind and present to what was happening outside, in particular the flowers,
0: the view, the sun, the wind. I'm very happy. What's your name, Mary? Mary, thank you very much, Mary. You know, I I think that the definition of mindfulness is the moment-to-moment balance, clear acknowledgement of what's happening here, and what's happening here in response to it, and what's happening as 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 a response to the whole thing, and that in addition to that, there's leftover from the space of. Acknowledging what's happening, the energy and the clarity to respond to the next moment with kindness and cordiality, with energy that uh, either addresses suffering or uh, alleviates suffering or maintains uh, non-suffering. That every moment of mindfulness makes a difference in the next moment after it that there's enough energy left in every moment of mindfulness to condition the next moment and to condition it in a direction that addresses suffering. That really the whole definition of mindfulness is not the passive receptivity to what's happening, but the passive receptivity with the intention to meet it in such a way as to inform with um, compassion, The next moment after it. That's what I think. So I'm glad for you that realization, Mary. We can realize a lot of things at one time. And sometimes there are reasons uh, just for the development of mind discipline to bring the attention to just one thing the in breath and the out breath and the space between, and the in breath and the out breath and the space between. Or this foot and this foot and this foot and this foot and touching and touching and touching and touching. Sometimes there's a very good reason to spend periods of time deepening concentration. That deepened concentration conditions an ongoing steadiness of the mind. You know when you think of steadiness of the mind, things happen all the time and we're startled by them. Actually, some people startle more than other people. How many people here think they have a an active startle mechanism. I do, I do, I, I do. Some people are just really strung, relaxed. How many people do you think they're strung, relaxed? Yeah, a bunch of people strung, relaxed. You know, I think that's the karma of our birth. Who got those genes and who got those genes? I think if they had done APCARS in the time that I was born, I'm sure they didn't, I would have really been, seriously up on that scale of startle mechanism it's not a bad thing or a good thing it's just a thing thing and it's a thing for me to know about so that it makes a space for me to be able to say you know what I startle easily and worries arise in my mind easily but if I know that just came with the came with the came with the package uh, I don't have to take the worries so seriously the worries are just unnatural uh, the the natural sequelae of uh-oh this is an uh-oh moment what could be wrong and then you think of a lot of things that could be wrong how many people have a lot of uh-oh in their mind well we'll talk a little bit about the uh anxiety and uh, fretting fretting Buddha would have called it uh, fretting is nicer to say it's nice isn't it If you feel better about yourself, if you say, I have a lot of anxiety, that doesn't sound good. But you say, I fret, that sounds like a nice Victorian thing to do. It's like polite fretting. It doesn't doesn't seem quite as pathologic as anxiety. It's the same, actually. So did everybody, So, anybody else want to say about how they walked around? What's your name? Nancy. Nancy.
1: I sort of felt like a zombie. <laughs> just everybody walking, and I wasn't really sure. One was supposed to look at somebody, or downcast eyes, or what? What were we supposed to be? Just totally within ourselves.
0: Well, Nancy, that's actually a wonderful question for everybody else who hasn't done this before. It is, you know, it's kind of a joke that somebody always tells on the first evening of retreats. For people who are new about the apparent zombie, uh, you know, up here it, it passes, you know. But my first retreat, years and years ago, 1977, was in a uh, in a uh, uh, Catholic uh, residential girls' school in the summertime when it was vacant, and they rented it out. and It was just on a street uh, in um, uh, in some. Uh, town up in Oregon, the name of it, Toledo, Toledo, Washington, Toledo, Washington. And uh, so we did our walking meditation out on the street, out on the big front lawn of this girls' school. So it's all those people walking around in a weird way, and cars going back and forth, and regular people regularly walking down the street, and I'm sure they thought it was very odd. After a while, maybe like people were rehabilitating themselves from (laughs) serious accidents or something. But the reason for going slow, and by the way, you don't have to walk slow to be attentive, is to really be able to really connect with the feeling of touching and touching and touching and touching and touching. And sometimes people say, you know, that doesn't suit me. If I walk really slowly... I think about touching and next week I'm going to Hawaii and touching, and so I better get those other clothes out of the closet to pack and touching. You know, Hawaii is three hours ahead of you. I'll probably be way off. You can do a lot of things and not stay present. And so people, really the instruction is to walk at a pace at which your attention can stay present with the experience. Some people often come, the first day of a retreat, and say, listen, I'm a runner, can I run in the lunchtime? Of course. You run, and you run, and you run, and you run, and you say, touch, 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 touch. breathe, 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 breathe. The instruction is really just stay here in this moment, and don't add to it. Just simple walking, simple sitting here. You know, lots of thoughts go by, and moods go by, Actually, when we are trying to cultivate steadiness, we don't pay attention very much to the moods or the thoughts. Concentration practice really is just this, just this, just this, just this. When we sit again uh, in a little while, maybe after our 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 lunch meditation, uh, we will um, we'll really begin to practice mindfulness as concentration meditation. Mindfulness, you pay attention to everything that goes by. Not only there's a thought, but what's in the thought? And there's a mood, and how does that mood feel in my body? So really, it's not just this and this and this and this. This is one way of cultivating a kind of keenness of attention. You know, when you look at something under a microscope, you look at it because you want to see a bigger picture of it. And that sometimes you say, oh, there's something over there, I really need to see more. And you put it on a 300 magnification from a 30, and then you really, really see it. So it's really cultivating a kind of keenness of perception so that we'll be, each of us, more keen observers. I'm thinking I want to tell you a story but I want to hear your experience more. Ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. What else happened? Um, one thing I
2: found um, by trying to focus on one thing, it sort of brings up that um, I feel it's trying to control. Um, so, one thing that sort of helped me is to just let my mind run. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the practice is not attaching myself to the thoughts that come in, mm-hmm. but to sort of stand back and observe. Because mm-hmm. um, again, when I Sort of sit and go, you know, then I get upset that I'm not focused on the breath. Mm-hmm. But if I just let go and say, mm-hmm. okay, my mind's going to
0: run, let's mm-hmm.
2: sit back and watch. It seems
0: to relax me more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What's your name? Brian. Brian. In, uh, in a particular uh, sermon teaching, which anybody can find on the net through Google, called the Foundations of Mindfulness. The uh, Foundations of Mindfulness is the principle meditation instruction that the Buddha gave in between all the stories about he went here and he went there is the Foundations of Mindfulness sermon and it says, these are the ways to pay attention. One way um, to pay attention is to bring your attention to the breath and the breath and the body which we've been doing, how the body moves as the breath comes in and out. Breath and breath and the body. Another way is to notice how uh, the valence of pleasant or unpleasant changes actually often moment to moment this is very pleasant, pleasant, pleasant not so pleasant it's cooler, I should wear a sweater okay, but here I am okay, cool, not so pleasant Ah, there's sun over there, I'm going over there where the sun is, okay, pleasant pleasant, pleasant, pleasant That's actually a very interesting and important kind of meditation because you begin to I begin, I think we all begin, to have a first-hand view of how we are pushed around in this life by uh, impulses that we hardly even recognize that say, do this, do that, do this, do that, go stand in the sun, go get a drink of water. Those are all benign impulses, so it's fine to do them. Um, And sometimes it's fine to be aware of them and not do them. The other morning, I remember, this is such a small item but i was I really was pleased with myself. I think I was paying pretty good attention, and I just fixed my done whatever morning things I do of sit and whatever. And then I sat down to have breakfast. I fixed myself a breakfast, and I was thinking, that's good. I'm all alone at home. I'm just having a nice quiet breakfast, no television, no radio, no nothing. having a breakfast, and I'm having my breakfast, and my cell phone is right over here. And I'm having my breakfast, and uh, I uh, have the thought, I'm thinking this and that, and this and that. And I have the thought, I have to call Jim. And my eye sees the phone, and I have the thought, I have to call Jim, and there's the phone. And my hand reached out to get the phone, because you can eat and talk at the same time. But I was halfway out there, and I heard myself think I have to call Jim. And I thought, wait a minute, no I don't. I want to call Jim. And I need to call Jim sometime today, but I don't have to call Jim the second. You know that The imperative in that moment, and we frequently have imperative. You know. uh, <laughs> I always feel worried when I'm in a group of people having a meeting and someone says, I have to put this out right now. And I think, no, you don't. You can probably hold this in and think about it a little bit. <laughs> before you put it out in this particular form. When someone says, I have to put this out right now, you know it's not going to be extremely good news for the community and probably <laughs> probably not in a form that everybody can digest very well. We don't have to do most things. We have to get out of a burning building. But we don't have to do most things that the mind presents as an imperative. So there's a little thing that cell phone I would have I have to call Jim. No, you don't. You can call them later. Yeah. this particular sitting and walking meditation, I just felt a really strong compulsion to sleep the entire time. To sleep. To sleep. I just wanted to go to sleep. And, you know, I
1: was feeling aversion to that, to that feeling and then, you know, trying to be with that feeling which then just made me want all the way down to the
0: ground. And what's, I mean, what do you do with that? With that? What's your name? Julia, that's who else felt sleepy while we sat or walked. It's, you don't. It's not so likely to feel sleepy while you walk, but anyway. But you felt both. You know what? I, you know I think it means. I think it means that we're all very tired. And when <laughs> when I tell people when people come on retreat on the first day of a retreat on the afternoon of the first day of a retreat, if you look out. It's like everybody is leaning, listening this way or that way. We chronically are sleep-deprived. When people say, what should I do? Should I take a nap? I say, maybe, but not in your room. Uh, you know, lie down on the floor, lie down on a zafu, take a ten-minute nap while people are walking. Then you'll wake up and you'll be waked up. But to fight with sleepiness is really, it's really the most unpleasant feeling. And because of this, often it's accompanied, not I mean it's gruesome to have to keep your head up and your eyes open, uh, and be sleepy. I have actually perfected the technique. I used to sit as a uh, uh, on retreat. I always choose to sit on the floor on a Zabitan against the back wall. <laughs> then you can lean, and from time to time you fall asleep. Then you wake up three minutes later, and you're refreshed, but nobody knows. <laughs> I think sometimes I do that up here, too, but nobody knows. (laughs) But, you know, the mind gets tired just like the body gets tired if you're out for a run, and you're running along, you're running along, you're running along, and you suddenly run out of energy. You slow down, and you walk for a while, and then you pick it up again. Maybe even sit down for a while, and then you pick it up again. Really, the instructions for this practice, uh, and Brian just said it before, is don't fight with your mind. Your mind wants to go to sleep and it's agonized let it sleep if you can sleep in the chair all the better but otherwise lie down your mind is running thoughts let it run the thought Uh, the third foundation of mindfulness we did with one is the body and the second is tones of pleasantness the third foundation of mindfulness is called awareness mindfulness of the contents of mind which is uh, mind filled with lust mind empty of lust uh You know, lust means a desire for it. It doesn't mean lust. It means all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're walking down the street and you pass by a pizza parlor and you go by and all of a sudden you weren't hungry, you didn't think you were hungry, you weren't thinking about eating. Here comes the smell of the pizza and all of a sudden you're thinking, hmm, pizza, I could eat. Lust arises in the mind. Greed or desire, you could call that desire. It's not greed. It's just desire. And you can either go have the pizza or not have the pizza depending on the appropriate time. So, mind full of lust, mind empty of lust, mind full of anger, mind empty of anger. What I love about that particular instruction in the sutta is that it just lists those things that you could be aware of without saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. So, you don't have to think, oh, empty of anger is good, but filled with anger is not good. It just presents it as these are the things that happen to people. Sometimes the mind fills with anger, sometimes it fills with lust, sometimes it fills with torpor, which is what, is the other name for sleepiness. Sometimes it fills with agitation and fretting. And sometimes it's just confused, it doesn't know what it's doing, it's filled with doubt. And sometimes, one of those, Brian, one of those instructions is the meditator knows, the practitioner knows Mind filled with thoughts or mind empty of thoughts. And I love that because it just so normalizes whatever you got, you got. got. a lot of thoughts? That's mind filled with thoughts. You say, wow, my mind is full of thoughts. Here's a thought this, 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 this. And then here's a certain thought that says, so and so shouldn't have said that to me. No, he really shouldn't have said that to me. That wasn't nice at all. When I see him, the next time I see him, I won't be so nice to him, and then he'll ask me this, and then he'll ask me that. There's a way of engaging with a thought and tying the mind in a knot, or just saying, "There's that thought, and it's gone." There's that thought, and it's gone. Or the thought that came through my mind as I was having my breakfast: "I have to call Jim." I do, but not now. You know that you can you can you can hear the thoughts and see the thoughts, and not be pushed around by them. I take seriously the idea of, uh, of awakeness being freedom, liberation, being absolutely able to make your own decisions. The fourth foundation of mindfulness, by the way, just so we complete that and you learned a little uh, Buddhist psychology, Buddha Dharma. Dharma means truth. The Buddha said you can pay attention to the body or to the pleasantness or unpleasantness, feeling tone it's called, or to, or to the contents of mind, thoughts or feelings that are there, or to the way things work. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is awareness of what we might call insights, that things come and go, that all of a sudden we're so sleepy and then we're not. You say, oh, not sleepy anymore, and then a little while later sleepy again, or you weren't hungry when we started at 9 o'clock, but maybe now starting to be hungry a little bit. Or So things come and go. The Buddha said there were th- three things that it would be really important for human beings to know. And when I first heard them, or uh, actually my teacher said to me, now we're going to tell you the three insights that you're supposed to discover in meditation. And I thought, no, 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 don't tell me. It's not good if you tell me what I'm supposed to discover. If I discover them, how will I know that I actually discovered them or that I'm just remembering what you told me? That's not fair. That's like telling who did the murder on the first page of the mystery. You have to read till the end to see. And then they went right ahead. I didn't say no, no, no. I thought no, no, no. And then they went right on and said. And it turns out, at least for me, that it's different to hear about them than to actually continually re-experience and say look at that, that's true things do come and go things do come and go not only, when you think about this particular day a long time ago you saw this in the program of Spirit Rock and you had the thought, I'll go to that and then you marked it, and and then you registered and you paid and you marked it in your calendar and then it was approaching in your mind okay, two weeks from now is that day one week from now, tomorrow is this day now we're in the middle of the day And tomorrow it will be in the same past as last year's World Series and two-year-ago election. It's in that past that we only remember with memory traces. It's not actually there anymore. Just as the future isn't actually there, it's a hypothesis. And when I heard that, I thought, who doesn't know that? Everybody knows that things come and go. But I think it's been different for me to really pay attention to that and really sense it, uh, particularly around struggles in my life and in my mind, in the middle of them to think this is never going to end, and then it ends. And you notice it, and it makes a difference for the next struggle. So things come and go. Uh, Everything is interconnected. Uh, What... I didn't understand this for a while as well as I think I do now, that everything happens because of a cause. You remember when I told you before about that branch of the oak tree fell down? That wasn't a desire of the oak tree to fall on someone or not on someone. It fell because it was it's time to fall. You say, what was the cause of the oak tree falling? It was the cause of how old it is or it was the cause of the rains or it was the cause of a wind that blew, but... There was some reason why that branch fell then. If someone had been under that and say, "Well, what was the cause of that? What's the karma of that? Say, the reason that someone was under it at that time is that they happened to be there. So they left their home at a certain time. It doesn't have to be a personal reason or one with volition that something somebody deserved to be under the tree, they were there when it happened my cousin was on the beach at Phuket when the tidal wave was there uh, several years ago, tidal wave at Phuket and he left four hours before the wave came in and a lot of people didn't leave some people I knew in Marin hadn't left the beach at Phuket you don't know um And sometimes when I think about that, I think you don't know. Uh, there's a kind of alarm that comes with it. Do you ever think about that? Um, I remember hearing stories about a particular, um, a particular plane. It's some, this is a long, long time ago, but there was a plane that crashed as it took off out of Chicago, and I knew somebody on that plane. And then I read a lot of stories about This happens very, 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 very rarely. By the way, I'm an intrepid traveler. I don't worry about airplanes at all, even that I have a fretting mind. They're very, very safe. But anyway, I knew somebody on that plane. And I heard a lot of stories about people who arrived just after the gate had closed and there were no seats left. And then so I sometimes think to myself as I'm rushing to get a plane... Maybe I shouldn't get on this plane. <laughs> but then I think maybe I should get on this plane. How do I know if I should or shouldn't get on this plane? And maybe the next plane? <laughs> you don't know ever. Uh, oh. You don't know ever about anything. A couple of years ago, I was standing on a line, it was a, a little bit back and this overhearing two people behind me on one of those security lines um, and overhearing what they're saying young voices, adults but young voices and one of them says, says saying to the other it's your fault and the other one's saying you mean it's my fault, it's your fault no, it's your fault that we're late no, it's your fault that we're late back forth, back forth, like ping pong your fault, my well, if you hadn't this that that your father were late, and i you know I look around, I pretend I'm not looking at them, but I'm actually looking at them, and I see that there are people like in in uh, it's sweatsuits, they're young people, a couple they're obviously going on a holiday somewhere they had, they're wearing sports outfits, they were carrying something I don't know, maybe tennis racket bags or something, but I could see there were people going on a holiday somewhere. And I have this tremendous impulse to turn around, and, you know, your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault, and say, wait a minute, stop. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. Either you're going to get there on time or you're not. And if you don't get to this plane on time, there'll be another plane. And besides, you don't know if this is the plane that's going to fall down or the next <laughs> one that's going to fall down. You don't know anything except you're messing up your vacation before you start. I didn't say anything because it's not nice to do that (laughs) meantime the people before me and there's a couple behind me a couple before me pushes all their stuff through the security and uh, they come on the other side I come on the other side right after them and we're all getting dressed and putting on the shoes and putting on the coats and getting dressed back up again and they're about to pick up their bags and they give each other a hug and a kiss right there on the line Uh, as they're congratulating each other they made it through the security I guess. so I had the thought I should call the attention of the people behind me to the people in front of me and say listen in anxious situations there are two things you could do you can either have a fight about the situation or you can kiss it and keep on going because there's only two things you can either fight or not with your mind you can struggle to stay up you can struggle to stop the thoughts Or you can just say, this is what's happening. Mindful of sleepiness, mindful of thoughts, late for the plane, stuck at Richardson Bay in traffic. That's what's happening. I'll do the best I can with what I've got and not compound my situation with tension. That's actually the whole of what the Buddha taught. My friend and and teacher and colleague Sharon Salzberg says those are add-ons. Those editorial opinions, I should have started earlier, I should have started later, you should have this, you should have that. So the fact is, we're late, or not, and we'll make it, or we won't. But all those add-on opinions is what really debilitates the mind and debilitates relationships. Because they cloud the mind, and wisdom cannot show up. What else happened to you in your walk? Yes, Kim? Kim?
1: <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, I'll just sort of name it with it. But secretly, I'm thinking, well, that's the way I'm going to get rid of it. Right? Yes. <laughs> so it didn't go away, and it was so disappointing. So anyway, I talk about it. you know, like, not. And then I get anxious. Yeah. So it's not going to go away. Oh my God, the whole day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. So you understand that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anyway everybody heard that, right? Otherwise, i say it after. Kim said, "I was sitting. I was looking forward to this whole day, and uh, I sat down. Wow, I'm here, and right away, my lower back starts hurting, and I start very, first of all being disappointed, looking forward to this whole day. Now my back hurts. It's so early in the day. It's probably going to hurt the whole day." and i'll bring my attention to that part of the back because you probably heard the instruction if you calmly bring your attention to where there is increase it, where where you do actually bring your attention when that that's actually not how it happens when something hurts in your body to say it clearly your attention is there you don't bring it to there you you are already paying attention to it that strong sensation has called at, you know it's a strong sensation because your attention is called to it. And you may have heard somewhere in your meditation instructions that if you calmly bring your attention to it and really pay attention to it, the, the sensations will just dissipate and uh, there'll be your experience of the discomfort will be less. It's sometimes true. <laughs> It's true when the mind can be steady enough and uh, really uh, concentrated enough not to uh, wobble with thoughts, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not doing it right, I'll never be good, my whole day is... When the mind is steady enough, the steadiness of the mind creates a certain uh, raising of the pain threshold is what actually happens. It's a little bit like when people do hypnosis and don't feel um, dental work a little bit. If the mind is absolutely steady enough, so it can't tell itself any any um, uh, upsetting stories, sometimes it can be with a discomfort, and the discomfort, the apparent discomfort, lessens because the pain threshold is raised. It's a very helpful trick if you're in the dentist's office, if you have a pain that you can actually deal with. Uh, It doesn't cure the muscles or whatever in the back that's irritating you. It lasts for as long as it lasts. And the experience of the pain is less because you're not frightened by it. Because the experience of felt pain is always the experience itself, plus The fear about it. We bring a certain amount of tension. So if you concentrate it, the pain threshold seems to go up, maybe altogether because fear is gone at that moment. On the other hand, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do if the discomfort is significant enough. I think what works more for me is for me to tell myself all the things that you did, Kim, I'm so disappointed. I'm really disappointed, sweetheart. You're really disappointed. Relax. Take a breath. It's just for today. Soon you'll get up and walk. Just take a breath. You can probably do another breath. You can probably do another breath. If it doesn't feel better in another breath, you can stand up and do standing meditation. This is going to be fine. Sweetheart, you're doing great. Just, that's what you do. You bring your attention to it, but instead of, you know, um Negotiating with it to make it less—you you accommodate it. You say this is really painful. It's going to be all right. Not going to be here all day. And and also, I I, I tell people you don't have to say sweetheart. You could say honey, <laughs> or you could <can> say. <laughs> but you have to do something. To uh, you know, you can just say your own name if you want. But I like to say sweetheart because it. Um, it, makes, it reminds me that it's not my fault that it's hurting me at this point. It doesn't have to do with whether or not I'm a good meditator or a good person. Uh, and actually, if, if your child came to you or your, your friend or your partner or your whatever that you cared about and said, it hurts me, you'd say, sweetheart, relax. You'll be all right. This isn't going to last. I would call on what I know as wisdom. It's not going to last. And what I know about kindness and compassion, which is the sweetheart and the allowing part, and Kim, you can always stand up if you want to, right? Where you, anybody can stand up, uh, whether standing, uh, whether, whether 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 standing, uh, seated or lying down, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection in any of those postures. One should sustain this recollection. What else happened to you as you sat? Yeah.
1: Uh, I was walking on one of the little paths and
2: something scurried and hid under a bush. And I um, thought, well, I, I was going to walk and see if I could see what it was. And then it star- I thought, oh, I startled it. And I wonder what it was. And then it came out and, and it, it startled me. And it was a little lizard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and be startled when anything you know I think, I think I think living things startle when anything surprises surprises them it's a surprise mechanism you know, when, someone, when someone jumps out from behind a door and thinks they're going to be funny and says boo you get mad right Yeah. You know? And they're playing, you know. For you child, does boo? What are you doing? Because we get surprised and frightened. Yeah. I at first I've done this before, but all, even so, at first I um, came outside and I thought, oh God, look at those people walking really slowly. That's the way to do it. And I was like, no, I don't want to walk slowly. Uh huh. You know,
1: uh-huh. Media. Uh-huh. and I really let that go quickly
0: uh-huh. but I really had the idea that I, I was supposed to do it a certain way I, th- I, who had, I, I think we, many people had the idea do you have the idea you have to do this a certain way mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it's a weird way mm-hmm. I have had moments uh, I, I, walking on retreat I remember walking out, uh, down in the desert at Yucca Valley on a retreat and it really has nothing to do. I've done lots of walking meditation before and since. And on a particular occasion, if the mind is in a uh, err mood because it doesn't feel pleased with itself, it suddenly makes disparages everything that it sees. So it looks around and it says tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace and all our yesterdays have lighted fools away to dusty death. That actually is one of the... I had to learn in the seventh grade this whole, whole verse out of Macbeth. But it actually fits very well um, Life is, life is a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. So I, I hadn't remembered it since the seventh grade, but it came back. That's what it looks like, people going nowhere. But the whole idea, I should be doing my back should not be hurting me. I should be walking faster, this should be faster, slower, this or that. Or, I think that the word should is one of the problematic words. In a language, that the, the idea that there's a right way to do something and a right mind to have, and uh, it should be that way. It's not that way. I think the whole thing, of, of uh, over the last few years, I've thought the whole, the whole thing is the, the uh, addressing imperative in the mind. It should be like this. It's not like that. It's like this. I'd like it to be like that. Maybe at some other time it would be like that. But now it's not like that. It's like this. And how can I be with that in a way that's um, cordial and non-combative? I think about the non-combative mind. Not only not fighting with its experience, but the more I see how my mind fights with experience, I realize everybody else's mind does too. And when it doesn't, when my mind is good in the sense of not fighting with its experience, it not only is nicer to myself, it's nicer to everybody else. Everybody else looks better to me, and I'm kinder to them. Look in the Paramita chart a little bit and do a little bit of um, studying. So I hope um, that we would do today some... We will do some more sitting quietly meditation. And uh, I hope that along with uh, the, the path parts, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, we would talk about the virtue training that's part of uh, what the Buddha taught. I actually think that they are all so intertwined with each other that uh, well, let me, let me tell you that, let's, let's do it this way remember before I said we'll, we'll come to the chart, hold the chart remember I said the second and third noble truth are uh, that suffering is imperative in the mind and that the third truth is that we can have peaceful minds minds without imperative I'd actually love to say peace is possible not ongoing peace every single second because it seems to me that at least as far as I can tell from my own experience I can feel tremendously peaceful and tremendously equanimous and content and something happens and the mind flurries it just does I tell... I used to tell people that I could have the most equanimous state in the world and uh, two words would shatter the equanimity and they would say what two words and I'd say well the phone has to ring and you pick up the phone ring ring pick it up and someone says hello ma (laughs) and it doesn't sound good so the whole equanimity no matter what everybody has that people could I could pick up the phone they can say hello self and uh-oh, because you know it's not good. And your heart falls down because that's just what happens to human beings. And you get it back again. But I actually think that it's humbling and inspiring to see that you have to do it over and over and over again. That when we say that the Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment, I think it gives the wrong image because it sounds like you get somewhere. I don't think you get anywhere. I think we stay here all the time and awake if we're lucky and if we practice hard. But it isn't like if I practice very hard I'm going to get to a place where I am an unshakable rock forever. I know that the Buddha did. I love that as a paradigm. But since I'm not there yet, I like to think that what's making me nearer to that is being here more of the time. So the second noble truth is the truth of tension in the mind of suffering. The third is that peace is possible. The first is that life is challenging for everyone, for everyone. Sometimes the translation from the Pali that you'll read is life is suffering. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a, uh, it's a misleading uh, translation because not every moment of life is an anguished moment. I imagine that for the most part, for most of us here in this moment, we're not anguished. You know, we probably have worries on our mind. Every as everybody in their world has uh, worries on their mind, but my mind's pretty relaxed in this moment, and I'm pretty happy to be here. And Buddha Dharma is the best thing I know to talk about, and it keeps me in the best mood. I love remembering that peace is possible. It makes me happy. So this moment is okay, but. You know that there may have been uh, upsetting moments this morning before I got here. There might be after I leave. There might be during the time that I'm here. Who knows? That life is continually challenging, and it's supposed to be. It's the nature of life. It's not a mistake. A friend of mine once said, "If you wanted another kind of a life, you came to the wrong planet." It doesn't happen on this life that way. You know, that, that what we, as a matter of fact. Uh, Eric Erickson, the, the psychologist, called it um, called the challenges of life, the ones you expect, developmental hurdles. You have to learn to let go of your mother and go with somebody else and realize that you're not attached. To her. You have to learn to locomote. You have to learn to go to preschool. You have to learn to go to kindergarten. You have to learn to do algebra. You have to learn to deal with a pubertal body and an adolescent body and you have to learn to figure out your sexuality and what you're going to do with it and how you're going to have relationships and what you're going to do with your work life for the next 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years after that and then how to deal with your arthritis and, you know, the, you know, and the death of your parents and the increasing deaths of many friends. So every time, as we go through a, what you might call a normal life without any catastrophes happening to people... There's so much to learn to deal with, and they're each uh they're each uh a serious challenge we have to develop new apparatus that we didn't have before uh, the expression that I like is people people say i'm uh you know i'm in a new i'm, I'm uh i'm in between I'm in a new situation uh I think we're all always in a new situation, or maybe not today, but something happens, we fall in love, we're in a new situation. Then we fall out of love, we're in a new situation. We uh, have children, we're so happy about it. Then we have a house full of children, we have a new situation. Then they leave home and they go away and we have a new situation. And everything requires getting used to. I think we're all getting used to accommodating. The big accommodate is accommodating what we don't want. You know, mostly if we can choose something, like having a partner and then we want that partner, having a family and we get the family. Mostly if we get what we want, that's not problematic I can't actually even remember. I think who the person was who told me this. I remember now. There was a man I knew who um, was a a colleague, a professional colleague of my husband's, who uh, died in his uh, late 30s, early 40s, a long time ago. Uh, We all had young families at the time. And he um, he developed a, a, a rare cancer, and he died um, at an early age. And he wrote a letter that got sent to uh, all his friends and colleagues after his death. And it said, um, he said about his life, uh, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. And I love that. I thought, imagine having that sort of feeling about your life that you never wanted other. Another person I think about is a person who um, used to regularly come to Spirit Rock on Wednesday mornings to that class. I was a young woman who developed uh, MS also in her early 40s, in the height of uh, her youth and vigor and the professional success. And uh, she said her father, who was a woodworker, carved in wood a big plaque that she kept on her uh, bedroom wall so she could see it when she got up in the morning. And she said, this is my favorite Buddhist teaching. She said, now I have to really, I know now that I have this diagnosis, I really have to practice. And what her father had carved into that plaque was... This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And really, thats I think that in some ways, that's the crux of the mind maneuver that we're trying to learn, how to find the mind that's about to say, this isn't what I wanted, which happens in big and little ways all through our life. And sometimes this isn't what I wanted, and we can fix it. And sometimes we can't. And to be able to say that, to make them, to have the mind be conditioned to make that maneuver, that says this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got, and really mean that, really mean it's what I've got, so it's okay. That's I think the the mind muscle that we're actually trying to cultivate. The fourth noble truth is the truth of the path to the cultivation of the mind that can both say in times of dismay this isn't what I wanted but it's what I've got and be able to be with that is the mind that is clear enough to look around and see everybody else and really um, feel that they as well as I have that same situation and be moved by our mutual a mutual challenge everybody has to get from this end to the other end you know where I think about that a lot Um, I have the good fortune to uh, uh, live in France for part of the year and I'll go back on Wednesday and um, it's a very long flight but it's 12 hours in that airplane by the time you get on till the time you actually get off at the other end with the waiting and then the getting off at the other end. And it goes overnight, of course. So we get on, and it takes off about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and pretty soon it's night. You have dinner, it's night, and then people start to try to sleep. And uh, if you walk from the front of the plane or wherever you are on the plane to the back or to the front to go to the toilets that are there, you see the plane, particularly... Two or three o'clock in the morning you, go, you walk back and forth and you see the plane and it looks really kind of like a disaster. Uh, everybody is slumped in various postures of discomfort. You know that, uh, They're lying all over each other if they're flying together with somebody or they're trying not to lie on somebody if they're flying alone. And they have children draped on their lap And there's always somebody, a man or a woman, patrolling up and down the aisles with a a crying baby patting it and rocking back and forth. And if I walk back or forward a a little bit, both to walk around and to use those facilities, I have such a feeling of kinship with those people. I feel less upset about my own discomfort at that point. I'm absolutely not alone. Everybody is pushed to the limit at that point. Everybody's uncomfortable, and everybody's trying so hard to accommodate everybody else, trying not to lean on this person, trying to quiet the baby. Everybody is personally stressed and personally concerned for everybody else. Nobody, nobody does anything to disturb whatever peace he can have at that point. And I have such a good feeling about everybody there. I feel, first of all, I feel like I wish they all get there well. I wish I got there well. But it's, uh, I have the sense that, um, especially on these big, big planes, there's several hundred people on that. It's like a flying city. (laughs) I think it's like a flying world in a certain sense, it's a mini world. In that world, there are, there are 300 people on it. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, a small city. It's 300 people in it. Some of them are babies. Some of them are very old people. Some of them, you can see, are carrying oxygen. Some of them are probably quite sick. Some of them probably quite vigorous. All kinds of ages of people in between. All shapes and colors of people. I think it's like a little world. Somebody died in the middle of a flight I was on, uh one of those long transatlantic flights a couple of years ago. And it's quite startling when that happens, but then you realize, you know, people get born in airplanes too. Really, they're like flying cities, three hundred people. Somebody could get born, somebody could die. And you really have the feeling that we're sharing this journey. I wanna get there. I I wanna get there well and I want all these other people to get there well too. And I have a feeling that the whole of life is like that, you know, that if you think about this flying airplane as a microcosm of the whole world, here's this world that we're on and it's flying through space and everybody is trying to keep themselves comfortable until the end of their journey. On the airplane, everybody's journey is going to end at a certain time, but maybe some people before their time. Yeah. And such, a really a kinship that happens that what it primarily does is it soothes my own discomfort. That's, that's, that's actually really why I wanted to tell you that whole story, that it seems to me that what it does to me, it sustains my, my, my flight, and the feeling of kinship with other people and the, the bonding that it, I, I, you know, I don't say anything to anybody, but somehow it soothes my own discomfort. Feeling uh, the feeling of consolation and the feeling of kinship is really the antidote to discomfort I think for those of you who've had really the, the, the privilege I hope it's been privilege of staying with someone who's dying it's a comfort to stay with people who are dying who you love uh, and who love you uh, it, it, it's uh, certainly very sad that they're dying. But to be able to be together in a bond makes it better for everybody. At least that's my experience. So those are the four noble truths the of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. And if you came up the hill this morning and you turned that prayer wheel, you see that it has eight different facets on it. And that's the fourth noble truth, wise understanding, wise aspiration, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise concentration, which we've been practicing this morning, wise mindfulness that we'll talk more about this afternoon, and uh, wise effort, which from my point of view is the uh, uh, unsung hero of the Eightfold Path. I actually think we don't talk a lot about it but I think it's actually the most... Uh, it's, I think it's the pivotal point. It's uh, the mind that's about... Wise effort is the movement in the mind when it's about to start attention and doesn't. When it's about to get mad about something. Look what that person just said. Wait, when I see them tomorrow, I don't go there. Just take a breath. Think it over. Think it over. Think it over. They just said that. That's right. But that's just like them. They don't think a lot. It's okay. You know, don't go there. It's, um, I want to look at the chart with you. Anybody here knows Blue's Clues? Who knows Blue's Clues? Who doesn't know Blue's Clues? Blue, Blue is a, a dog. He's an animated dog on a cartoon. So here is one of Blue's clues. Uh, A a little girl is sitting. uh, I watch these videos with my grandchildren. Uh, A a little girl is sitting and she's crayoning. And she's crayoning. And she's got a big box of crayons right here on a table next to the desk that she's crayoning. Big box. of Everybody has a big box of used up crayons filled with crayons. She's crayoning. And here comes her mother and puts down a glass of milk. So you see the plot thickens. You know that something is now going to happen. And here's the crayoning girl who crayons with too much vigor or with enough vigor to dump over the milk into the box of crayons. And here comes the mother with a startled look. And here comes Blue, the animated dog, who says, Blue's Clues. And, he says, and every, all the animation stops and Blue says, stop, breathe, think, now act. And so, and so the, the animation continues and the mother says, oh, my goodness, now we'll have to wipe up this milk or whatever it is that she says. <laughs> and, I, and I think to myself, you know, I don't want to be too banal about it, but Blue's Clues is a fantastic way to talk about The moment in the uh, cycle of dependent origination, uh, which is a cycle of events that happens between a perception and an event actually coming to pass, the perception, the awareness of what happened, the impulse to do something, the starting to do something, the moment of reflection, the moment of mindfulness that stops it and says, wait a minute, Blue's Clues stop." Take a breath, breathe, think. You know, she's two years old. They dump over milk. Um, That's all. I shouldn't have put the milk there. That wasn't such a wise idea. I could put the milk on the other side. Or whatever. Think about what's really true here. Is making a fuss going to make any difference? Or make it better? It's going to make it worse. We'll clean up the milk now. Blue should be... Blue is great. <laughs> so let's look at wisdom on this. And I'll tell you what this is, where this chart comes from. The chart comes from I made it up. That's where it came from. But the, the, uh, the list of virtues on the chart is not made up. The list of virtues is generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience. Truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And there's a list of ten that are the virtues that, according to legend, the Buddha himself had fully perfected in all his lifetimes before his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama. You know, I think of that as a legend. But I love the idea of cultivating virtues over time and that the cultivation of virtues not only creates a mind that's relaxed because it's not filled with guilt and remorse so that we can meditate and we can be privy to really life transformative mind transformative insights but even without the meditation that the cultivation of insights themselves of, of virtues themselves Leads to direct insights about the condition of the world, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, and the possibility of the end of suffering. When I first started to practice, my teachers used to say, well, We're going to meditate. Uh, first of all, we'll take this code of precepts, morality, and then we'll meditate. And from the meditation, we'll have insights, and from the insights, we'll have wisdom. And the wisdom will manifest as compassion and kindness. So, uh, since my original training is as a chemist, you draw an equation, you say, this leads to this, leads to this, you make little arrows, this leads to this, leads to this. And there are equations <coughs> that are reversible. You can start at the other end, and the equations go both ways. The reactions keep on going. So I thought, well, suppose if I, what if, I meditate and meditate and I'm not good at meditating and I don't have those insights and I don't have those wisdoms. What happens to the compassion and kindness? Suppose I started by practicing the compassion and kindness. The, the, that would be the end of the meditation. Wisdom and compassion. And, and wouldn't it go the other way? Wouldn't those same insights come from that? I think they do. So I decided to make a chart about how they would and. The only thing about this chart that's actually uh, gospel in the sense of the Buddha said it is the list of the, uh, the virtues. But I think the other parts work and I'm very pleased with it. And in each case, the practice of leads develops the habit of leads to the final manifestations. If you look down to wisdom, which is the fourth of these it's on the first pay, it's on the first side, but it's the fourth virtue. You'll see it's again the first and the second and the third noble truths is we've been talking about that if I'm very um, if I take a, if I take um, care to be very attentive, I'll see what's true. Awake. I'll see what's true. I'll see actually that it's true, that people are suffering. There's a story about the Buddha. Well, let's go back. Somebody this morning, ah, what's your name? Said, I like the line, free from drowsiness. What's your name? Adrian. Adrian. Said, I like the I like the phrase, free from drowsiness. So uh, I'll tell you two stories, and we'll then we'll come back to the chart. There's a story about the Buddha that uh, someone met him at one point, and by that time there were a lot of legends about his tremendous wisdom and compassion and discernment, and uh, said to him, Are you uh, are you a god? And he is said to have said, no, I'm not. And they said, are you an ordinary man? And he said, no. And he said, well, what are you then? And he said, I, do you know it? I am awake. I am awake. So, a few years ago, I was at a conference in Santa Barbara. And to get there, I went. I flew to Los Angeles and I took a van, one of those van services to Santa Barbara. And um, five days later, and I was alone in the van at the time uh, with the driver, so we talked a lot. And coming back uh, five days later, I left very, very early in the morning and uh, five or six of my colleagues were leaving the conference at the same time so we got in the van. It was still dark and misty in the morning. And uh, I like to sit in the front with the driver. So they all sat in the back and I sat in the front with the driver. Um, and we started out. And pretty soon it was misty. It was it was foggy, actually, on that highway. And it was very early in the morning. And most of the people in the back fell asleep. And I was kind of somewhat drowsy myself, actually. And... Um, the driver was driving along, and uh, then he uh, turned to me at a certain point, and he said, uh, "You know, uh, do you suppose the people your your friends would mind if I pulled off at a Wendy's uh, or, or someplace?" He said, "I'm really sleepy, and uh, I'd like to get some coffee. So, you, do you think your friends would mind?" He said, "No, my friends would not mind. Uh, they'll, be, <laughs> they'll be fine." Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, matter of fact, I w- woke right, right up, but you know, I said, uh, and I turned myself for you know those van seats turns. I turned and I'm looking at him, and I, I said, "Do you want me to drive?" He I said, "No, no, no, I'm all right. I'm all right till we get to somewhere. But now I've decided I'm going to stay up and I'm going to talk to him, so that he stays awake. And I knew a lot about him. I knew that his name was Muhammad, I knew that he had come from India." Uh, three or four years previously that he'd come with his cousin that they, he had left a wife and three children in India waiting to be able to bring them to the United States that he and his cousin had opened a restaurant in West Los Angeles but it hadn't worked so they had to close the restaurant and now he was driving a, a, a van as an interim job and he was hoping to again be able to establish himself and bring the family from India So, there wasn't very much stuff that I could talk to him about. We'd gone through all that on my way down to the place. So, I think fast. I say to him, Mohammed, so you're a Muslim, right? And he said, Yeah, I am. I said, "Uh, Do you pray? He said, Yes, of course. So, I said, How many times a day do you pray? I know, but you know, I'm trying to. How many times a day do you pray? He said, Five times. I said, Oh, good. I said, do you pray in uh, English or in uh, Arabic? He said, oh, I pray in Arabic. I said, I'd like to hear how it sounds. He said, you won't understand. I said, that's all right. I'd like to hear anyway. So he said some stuff, said some stuff. Then he finished with that. And I said, uh, listen, do you need long or short time to pray? He said, well, it doesn't matter. You could pray long or you could pray short. He said, sometimes people, they pray all day but it's not really connected to their heart. I said, well, okay, how, what do you have to do so that your prayer would be connected to your heart? And he thought for a moment, and then he waved his hand at, at the whole windshield, as if to signify the whole world out there. And he said, well, you just look around out there. He said, it's as if we've all been thrown into the ocean and nobody knows how to swim. He said, when you think about that, you connect. So I said, just then, something, a Wendy's or something comes into view. And I said, oh, Muhammad, there's a Wendy. Do you want to pull off the road? He said, no, I'm awake.
1: <laughs>
0: but that's exactly it. When you look around and you see what's the story with people out there, and the whole world full of people, you look around you see the story about people. I talk to people all the time on airplanes. And and, and people say, how do you get people to tell you your story? It's not that hard. <laughs> you you say to people, instead of saying hello, because then they say hello and it's finished, you sit down, you put on your seatbelt, and you say, are you uh, on holiday? Uh, will you be on holiday in New York, or are you going home? So then... That's already they have to say. I live in New York and my oh, and I'm going back home and I've been here. And then you say, how was San Francisco? You can say something. Or they say, no, I live in San Francisco, but I'm going to New York because my sister's husband just died and I need to go to the funeral. And uh, really, if you ask something that has an answer, that's, that shows that you're interested, people want people to be interested in them. Do you know in Avatar, when people came away from Avatar... The, what are the words in Avatar that thrill everybody? I see you. That you should be a person. Everybody's a person with a story, and everybody wants to tell their story. Sometimes I think people are much more eager to tell their story to people they don't know than people they do know. They can tell their story and hear it out loud and have it witnessed. Everybody's got a story. Tell you one more story. <laughs> I went through the whole story to see if it was really a good, a, a worthwhile. Because I see it's twelve fifteen, and we thought we'd have lunch. Want to have one more story, and then we'll have lunch. I was sitting in a boarding lounge in Chicago, waiting to come home, and I I, was, I sat down next to. I remember it's a couple of years ago, not that long. And I thought, uh, as, I, as I was thinking later on, I began to tell the story. I said, I sat down next to an older woman, but she could have said the same thing about me. You know? <laughs> but she really was an older woman. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but I, was, I was interested in the fact that she was sitting there and her, uh, a young man, an adult man, he gone off, he'd say, Grandma, I'm going to go get you a Coke. And he'd, and he'd gone off and come. And I was sitting next to her. And I was impressed with the fact that she just sat there. She didn't have a... she wasn't reading a magazine. She wasn't doing anything. She wasn't looking and rummaging in her purse. She wasn't doing anything. She was just sitting there. So I asked her my question about, are you going home or going somewhere? So she said, I'm going home to West Virginia... This is the second time I've flown in my whole life. Uh, my first time was uh, three days ago when I came. I came for my granddaughter's wedding. And uh, so that's a wonderful thing to begin to talk about. What did the bride wear? How was the cake? <laughs> Where was the ceremony? Was it outside or inside? But she looked a little bit uh, tense. It was the first time she's flying, and I'm a good talker. And, and she seemed to really enjoy being engaged in the conversation So she was a little bit shy she didn't quite look at me but she, she seemed glad to tell about the cake and the minister and the wedding and I said is your granddaughter um, your, uh, uh, your son's <coughs> daughter or your daughter's it was my daughter's daughter but my daughter died uh, 10 years ago I said I'm I'm so sorry she said she died of stomach cancer so I said was that the worst thing that ever happened to you and she thought about it for a while and she said uh, no the worst thing that ever happened to me was the death of my first husband and I thought at the time it was remarkable that she had the capacity to think about relative. Losses and really consider them. And then she said, "I had a son. That uh, my first my my first child was a, a boy, and he was stillborn when he died. And then I had that daughter. I had another son, who uh, died um, after uh, Vietnam, and they said it." something about Agent Orange. She said, I have another daughter in West Virginia, and she has three children, so I get to see them. And she seemed so steady. And I said to her, uh, are you a religious woman? And she said, I do the best I can. <laughs> I said, uh, does your church hold you up a lot? she said, they're all right. She said, but you know what? I have neighbors. I have good neighbors. I talk to my neighbors a lot. And just then her son came back with the coat and he said, it's time to go. They've called our plane. And she got up and she left. We said goodbye and she left. And I watched her leave with the grandson. And I I realized that she had shared with me a
1: whole
0: story. You know, it's as if you can, if I, I, I had the momentary realization that this woman had this whole universe of story in her that she walked off with. And the, the whole airport, you know, O'Hare is, you know, the crossroads of the world, zillions of people are walking through the airport all the time. And for a moment, it isn't actually that I could visually see something, but it was as if I realized that every one of those people in the airport that I was now seeing, just like that woman who walked off, had an enormous universe of story and people, people who were dear to them, people they lost, people they didn't lose, people that they care about. Everybody got up that morning and put on their shoes and went out into the world with a whole universe of concerns and disappointments and they keep on going and I thought to myself people are so remarkable I think that still I think that thinking about that has been in the last five or ten years the I I think cultivating that awareness has been uh, as sustaining to me As thinking about training my mind to let go when it gets caught in a knot of suffering. It's not one or the other, it's both. I looked to see because I'd forgotten what I had written as uh, the fruit of wisdom, but the fruit of wisdom I wrote was clarity looking out and being able to see. It's like this. It's very complicated to be a person. It's like we've all been thrown into the middle of the ocean and nobody knows how to swim. And when you see that, you connect in your heart. So, it's 1220... Where is Sean? Let's okay. Sean's going to give you the some logistical news. I am going to give you some uh, practice instructions. I hope you brought lunch with you. Did you bring lunch? Said bring lunch. Everybody brought. If you see someone who didn't bring, see if you can share a little bit of something. Um, I really hope that we would spend this whole day in silence, because there aren't so many days. Remember, I'm talking a lot and you're talking some, but not to each other. Retreat silence. I really hope you'll take this next hour or so as retreat time. So take your lunch, take it in, take it uh, wherever you'd like. We can't eat in this room, but wherever you'd like, outside, on the bench, around. I think there may be some tarps spread out. Are there tarps? There are tarps, there are tables. Take your lunch. Eat it slowly. If you've never um, eaten a contemplative lunch, you know, it doesn't have to be weird, slow. <laughs> but eat it half, at the, half the pace that you would normally eat it. And... Uh, Here's the whole thing. When you take a bite of something, put it down and leave your hands free until you swallowed it and then pick it up again. That's the biggest thing, you know? Because we normally keep on. <laughs> on retreat, I say to people, halfway up to your mouth with a spoon, stop. <laughs> and I stopped saying that. <laughs> because people say when I do that and I pick up the spoon and halfway up I stop my mind says what's the matter with you <laughs> put the food in eat it slower don't aggravate yourself <laughs> don't fight with your mind but really eat it slower and chew it and taste it and enjoy it if we had made a wish for a perfect weather day we could not have done better than this if we had made a wish for a more perfect uh, season, the tree out there that's making those pink flowers is worth the trip. It's a perfect day in the perfect place. It's perfectly quiet. Maybe the turkeys will come around and display themselves. Um, just have a lunch and be present for it and enjoy it. And we'll come back here together at uh, one thirty, which will be... Uh, one hour and five minutes from now and now Walt will we'll tell you the instructions and then I'll ring the bell
2: thank you Sylvia oh,
0: well, it's
2: sorry <laughs> alright, can everyone hear me okay? great um, it is a really beautiful day so we're going to put out some tarps let's see if I can cut this feedback would you like this? that'd be great, yeah Everyone hear me now? All right. Um, So when we break, uh, we're going to have some volunteers who are going to put out some tarps on the lawn. Uh, Feel free to use those to eat on. Um, uh, There are some rattlesnakes around at this time of year. We found one in the foyer uh, during the retreat about a week ago. Uh, The energy is so great in here that even the rattlesnakes are coming. So... (laughs) uh uh-huh. so please be careful um, there are ticks as well so if you could do a tick check on your buddy maybe at the end of lunch that might be useful um, if anyone would like a hot tea um, or if you want to peruse the bookstore the community meditation hall is open right now so you're welcome to use the hall um, we ask that if you go into the dining hall to eat, which is okay, uh, please don't um, use the silverware or the cups or the tea in there, but you are more than welcome to use everything in the community meditation hall. Um, if you don't have a lunch, and if no one's willing to share with you, uh, we do have directions to the Woodacre Deli in the foyer. Um, also, Sylvia has a campaign to liberate some restrooms for women uh, so that we don't have really long lines. So I met with the housekeepers, and we're going to liberate the restrooms in uh, two residence halls in uh, Meta and Karuna uh, for the ladies. If there's a long line in the restroom up here, please feel free to use the restrooms in the downstairs section of Metta and Kruna, which are the first two buildings uh, as you go up the hill. So when you go down our road, they're the buildings on the left-hand side. Um, we have some books from Sylvia in the uh, foyer, if anyone's interested. There's a box uh, if you wanna submit your payment in there. Um, there's also cash inside the box if you need change. Um, um, this is a bit premature, but when we leave today, um, we're going to keep all the chairs and all of the mats, all the Zabatons and Zafus out. Um, so um, uh, we have a Monday night class tomorrow night in here with Jack Cornfield. Uh, which everyone is welcome to. Um, so we're going to leave everything out uh, in preparation for for that. And we have a lot of flyers in the foyer for upcoming daylongs. We have um, Anushka, Fernanda Poule uh, coming up. That's a day long for beginner beginning students. Anna Douglas and Sally Armstrong are each doing respective daylongs for experienced students. There's a flyer for uh, Qigong with Master Mingtang Gu. Um, and we have some Spirit Rock uh, quarterlies that list all of our retreats and daylongs that are coming up. Um, I think that's it. So, everyone, uh, enjoy your lunch. If anyone has any questions, feel free to come see me. Thank you.